0: Uh, We're going to start today, though, by playing a little game, okay? Um, It's not going to be that fun, but it'll be a a game nonetheless. Okay, so I have have a few quotes, and uh, I want you to guess uh, collectively. There's no prize, which makes it even less fun. Um, But we're going to guess collectively to see where these quotes came from. So here's the first one. The world is passing through troubled times. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They are impatient of all restraints. They talk as if they knew everything, and what passes for wisdom with us is foolishness with them. As for the girls, they are forward, immodest, and unladylike in speech, behavior, and dress. Okay, so is this from the 21st century, the 12th century, or 3rd century BC? Who thinks 21st century? Handful, okay, 12th century? Okay, good lot of you, and what about 3rd century? I think actually 3rd century one. so it's 12th century. This quote came from Peter the Hermit. He was a 12th century French priest. Okay, quote number two. Keep a tally, and if you got all three, um, you you get a (laughs) high-five. Yeah, cookies, that's right, perfect. (laughs) So, quote number two. They, meaning young people, have exalted notions because they have not been humbled by life or learned its necessary limitations. Moreover, their hopeful disposition makes them think themselves equal to great things, and that means having exalted notions. They would, also, they would always rather do noble deeds than useful ones. I love that. <laughs> their lives are regulated more by moral feeling than, than by reasoning. All their mistakes are in, in the direction of doing things excessively and vehemently. They overdo everything. They love too much, hate too much, and the same with everything else. Okay, so was this from? Fourth century BCE. Who thinks fourth century BCE? Okay, Uh, 7th century, 17th century, most of you, you're all wrong, it was 4th century, this quote is from Greek philosopher Aristotle, 4th century BC, final one, final one, okay, here we go, now obviously they weren't in English, but (laughs) translate it. I believe what really happens in history is this, the old man is always wrong and the young people are always wrong about what is wrong with him. The practical form it takes is this, that while the old man may stand by some stupid custom, the young man always attacks it with some theory that turns out to be equally stupid. So, is this from the 20th century? Uh, 16th century? First century? There was a bit, there was quite, a, quite a, I, think, I think 20th century won and that was correct. That is a quote from uh, British theologian, philosopher, and writer G.K. Chesterton. So, who? Anyone got three out of three? No, no one. No cookies. <laughs> they're, going, they're going in the garbage. <laughs> so, it was more fun than you said it was going to be. <laughs> what's, more fun. More fun. Okay, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I had to like lower expectations, you know, like. It's, <laughs> So, the writer of Ecclesiastes says rightly that there is nothing new under the sun. And the more I go along, the more I think that he was onto something. And though we are constantly being inundated with new technologies and new inventions, in many senses, our humanity remains unchanged from generation to generation. And one of the things that never changes, as we've seen in these quotes, is generational tension, yeah? And churches are not exempt from this. And in fact, sometimes we do more to propagate these tensions than perhaps we care to admit. Now, no generation is perfect, but we do tend to sort of idealize or lionize certain generations, right? So, for instance, the silent generation that's the generation who fought in World War II. You know, we look at that generation. Um, and we say, now there's a group of people who truly lived, you know, they respected people, they, they fought for our freedom, and those things are, are true. But sometimes they can also veer into the kind of that unhelpful territory, those kind of, un, those stereotypes, like, you know, they, they, wa- they walked to school both hill, both uphill both ways in two feet of snow, and they, they never had snow days because they weren't weak like the kids today, you know, like, st- stuff like that, that isn't, like, really helpful. Now it's probably good to be reminded that Generations as a concept are, are basically just, they're made up, right? Um, they're categories. Things like the greatest generation, silent generation, baby boomers, gen X, millennial, gen Z, gen alpha. These are all just broad sociological categories and they try to pick on cultural and generational trends, but there are a lot of times where you might be from a particular generation, but you don't really, you know, check all the boxes from that generation. But there is a sense in which there is an impact that one generation has on the next. There are so many considerations whether we are idealizing or criticizing. You know, we might say of the silent generation, to use them as an example again, um, the, the generation who had the Great Depression, who fought in World War II, we might say, you know, they were untouchable. They were fearless. They persevered through hardships like no other generation has had to since. Meanwhile, we're also neglecting the fact that many of them endured trauma in a time of famine and war. You know, how many men came home from war and were so disturbed by the things that they saw that they became distant and cold for the remainder of their lives and we kind of call that being a man. What kind of legacy does that leave for the generations that follow? Or the idea of the successful self-made individual that baby boomers propagate. Or how millennials like myself are entitled spoiled brats. Or how I skipped over Gen, Gen X because everyone else does that anyway. <laughs> or how or how Gen Z are growing up so technologically proficient that it makes every other generation like just scratch their heads, right? or how Gen Alpha, that's kind of our, our current crop of kids, that's like my daughter, um, are growing up in light of these like, sweeping societal changes. You know, they're growing up in like, the COVID-19 pandemic era where during these formative years, they experienced this in a profound way, more than any of us in this room. All of these generations are at least in part the direct result of the preceding generation. And so I'd like us to ask a few questions as we consider this morning. What effect does an entire generation have on the one that follows? Or maybe a more direct question for your generation particularly, what effect will your generation have on the one that follows? And then to make it even more personal for you specifically, what effect will you have on the next generation? people will continue to be critical of the upcoming generation and the upcoming generation will be con- con- will continue to be critical of the one that came before it it's this never ending cycle but far more important is to thoughtfully consider the world that we are leaving behind for the generations that follow us and from a christian perspective what sort of legacy of faith are we passing along you know are we creating a world people will be more or less curious about our faith. Are we instilling fear and legalism or are we leading with love and grace? Are we passing down the great stories of our faith, both from scripture and also from our own personal stories? Are we being passive in the formation of those that follow or are we being active and intentional? Today we're gonna to be looking at a passage from Judges chapter two, which is not exactly like the feel-good, sexy passage that you'd expect on like a, you know, let's, let's it's welcome back Sunday, we're excited, everyone's back from the summer. Um, but I think there's something really critical in this for us here. Judges is a difficult book with lots of challenging stories that can offend our modern sensibilities at times. But in Judges, there is this generation Similar to the silent generation fought in World War II, they had experienced hardship in the desert and they had fought valiantly as the Israelite army. They were victorious and they were seen by, by all as faithful to God, brave and strong, and God blessed them. But something happened in the generation that followed that I think is really important for us to examine. And I think this is quite critical for us in this season as a church community. So we'll be in Judges chapter 2, if you want to turn your Bibles there or your phones. And for those who might be unfamiliar or need a little brief refresher with the ordering of everything, um, this is a passage from the Old Testament, which is long, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And this is after the life of Moses. Um, Moses led the Hebrew people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. But due to Moses' unfaithfulness, he was not able to be the one to lead them into the promised land. So he passed his leadership over to a man by the name of Joshua. And Joshua bravely led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, which God had set aside for them. There were battles and there were ongoing feuds, but eventually Israel was able to settle into the land, going from a nomadic people for generations to a more formalized nation. If you could imagine an entire generation, 40 years in the desert, and then another time period where they were kind of fighting to get settled in the land, the whole people of Israel must have had this collective sigh of relief. It's over. We can settle down. We can, you know, um, build our cities. We can kind of build culture. We can uh, enjoy our families. And eventually, Joshua, who had led them there, who led faithfully, who walked through the Israelites' most intense season, who was a spiritual and political leader and a guide to so many, he died at the ripe old age of 110 years old and was buried. But something happened in the wake of Joshua's death. And we'll see here as we read from Judges chapter 2. So let me just pray briefly before we read. So, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on your path that you set before us through Jesus Christ? Amen. So starting at verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of their land, each to their own inheritances. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of hundred and ten. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. I don't know if I said that right. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They, for, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies and all all around who they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. In great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when that judge died, the people returned to, the ways, of even, to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenants I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. This is like quite a pop when you read this passage. It's a lot like if you ever read through the book of Judges, it's a lot like the rest of the book of Judges. It's pretty intense. The writer of the book wrote this with great intentionality he looked back at this generation with great despair, exhorting God's people to never make this same mistake again. The whole book of Judges serves as its big red warning flag about what happens when we stray from God's intent and design for our lives. The reminder was important thousands of years ago, but it is also of critical importance for us today. And the primary concept is very, very simple. It's do not forsake the one who creates and sustains your very breath. This sets the stage in the book of Judges for all sorts of chaos and evil and destruction that follows the rest of the book of Judges. And if you've never read the book, um, this chapter basically gives you a little snapshot of what happens. It gives like a, um, almost like a, a, a summary of what happens each time a judge comes and saves Israel. It's showing us this template and this generational cycle. And here's how it would go. Israel would have some sort of evil act. You know, idolatry was the biggest offense here, which was usually cult worship practices like cultic prostitution. Israel would turn away from God, neglecting God as Lord, as the one who had brought them out of slavery, neglected to remember and tell those stories then they were defeated and captured and even enslaved by their enemies then they would cry out to God they would turn from that idolatry and and sin and repentance and then God would send a judge and the judge was someone who was like a ruler who would come up and kind of lay the smack down and he'd say okay I'm gonna make this right and through that judge God would deliver his people and the cycle could be summed up in kind of the following five words there was sin God's people would revert back to their old ways. There was slavery, bondage to sin. There was supplication, asking for divine intervention, salvation. God raises up a judge to save them. And then finally, the word silence, that God would kind of pause for a second. He would watch to see if his people would remain faithful after saving them. And this would happen over and over again, from generation to generation, for centuries. There seemed to be no escape from this cycle. And it started here in Genesis chapter 2. There was a generation that did not know God and the work of his hand. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a specific reason as to why this happened. But I think we can make some educated guesses based on our human condition and our human experiences. My best guess the generation following Joshua, again, they just settled in the lands. They had that collective sigh of relief. They got complacent, and they got comfortable. They were running off of the high of their victories under Joshua's leadership, and it's as though they expected that high to kind of carry them through from the next generation. They did not share the good news of God's story about how He saved them out of slavery. He brought them out of the the desert land into this, this promised land. The remarkable and miraculous things that occurred as God brought people to where they were today. Commentator Herbert Wolf says it this way. He says, people cannot thrive on the spiritual power of their parents. Each generation must personally experience the reality of God. This is kind of the constant caution for each generation. What if we take greater responsibility for the way a future generation plays out? What if we stop pointing the finger and shifting the blame and assuming the worst about other generations and look reflectively inwardly and say, how have I perhaps propagated this or how have we collectively as a generation encouraged this sort of thing the israelites in joshua's generation left a severe gap of knowledge for the next generation they left them hanging and they paid for it dearly and in fact in many ways this cycle of generational sin continued on and on and on the story of judges becomes the story of eventually exile out of their lands until the time of Jesus when he came to be the perfect embodiment of all that Israel aspired to be. He became the fulfillment of every generation, and it's in Jesus that we can look to for our hope today and our hope for the generations to come. So there's three questions I, I want to ask in light of this cautionary tale found in Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 2. The first question is, what should be passed down? What should be passed down? What specifically do we pass down? Secondly, to whom should we pass it down to? And lastly, how should it be passed down? So, to that first question, what should be passed down? We explore ultimately the fundamental story of our faith. We explore the great commandments, the great exchange at the cross, and the great commission. This is the teaching of Jesus, the act of salvation at the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus and the mission of God's people in light of the resurrected Jesus. So the greatest, or the great commandment that we see in uh, Matthew chapter 22 is based out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, but it's kind of expanded upon as this Pharisee goes and asks Jesus a clarifying question in a way to kind of trick him a little bit. So the Pharisee asks this. He says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The mark of every Christian, this is like, I know, Christianity 101, but just, it bears repeating. We can't say this enough. The mark of every Christian is someone who loves God and loves our neighbor as ourselves. This is the summation of all of Christ's teachings. If we ourselves can capture the fullness of this idea and pass it along, both of them, both sides of this coin, not just one, the next generation, I believe, will be gracious and caring and truthful and even a generation that is appealing and attractive to others around them. This is a simple concept, but as we all know full well, it's a lot more difficult to actually live out. It's something that we must pass on though. And Jesus lived out this reality of loving God and loving neighbor all the way to the cross and to the empty tomb. And this is what we call the great exchange, that Christ has died and Christ is risen and that Christ will come again. This is the story that we tell and retell and call and we are called to pass down from generation to generation to generation. In Judges, the seems to continually forget the story of God's faithfulness and redemption. And you have to imagine that to some extent the stories of God's faithfulness have, had not been faithfully passed down and the results were tragic for so many reasons. We don't have to have that same reality. We can pass down this story of Christ. And then there's the Great Commission. The calling of every believer In Matthew 28, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. It's the commission that will ensure that each generation, each nation and every culture has an opportunity to respond to what we just described as that great exchange that Christ has died and Christ has risen, to make and grow believers, to help them to mature, to help them to flourish in their faith, to leave a legacy of faith for every future generation, that the world might know the love of Jesus. So that's the what. That's the what. We're passing on the great commandment, the great exchange, and the great commission of Jesus but to whom are we called to pass it down? And this question, for those of you who have families, might feel very obvious that we pass along to our children and our children's children. Their faith might not always look precisely how ours has looked, but if we leave a legacy of faith and we share the stories of what God has done through Christ, both in the scriptures and in us, We have done our part and we have done well and we trust the Lord with the rest. But for all of us, whether we have families or whether we are childless or whether we are single, I want you to consider that even just one person or maybe two or three if you're brave, that you feel called that you could mentor and teach or perhaps people that you could identify and say, hey, I would like to learn from you. I would like to grow and, and discover new things because I see something in you. This is a moment to encourage and challenge all of us in this room that there is someone you can learn from, probably in this room. There's someone that you can learn from and someone that you can teach. As we further Courtright's mission of growing in community, we must be willing to be in this sort of reciprocal kind of community where we can learn and grow from each other. You know, I am indebted to those from other generations who have have invested in me over the years. I think particularly of my father-in-law, who was a pastor. He he was actually my pastor long before he was my father-in-law, which is kind of cool. And he saw potential in me when I was very young that I didn't know that I even really had. That was really, really meaningful for me. We didn't always agree or see eye to eye on everything, and we got into pretty animated conversations, especially as the years went along, because we worked we worked together for 12 years. But we that was actually the beautiful thing is that we were able to grow and stretch one another in really profound ways. And then again, a number a number of years ago, during a, a key season in my life, I needed someone who could mentor me, and I prayed and I asked God who there might be. Who's out there that could um, be that person? And I remember very distinctly, I was driving down a road, I remember exactly what road it was, and I was just praying, Lord, would you reveal that person to me? And this doesn't happen very often, in fact, almost never, but this person's picture just came to my mind. And I thought, yeah. him, oh, interesting, okay. And then I had to kind of go and... Um, ask him, which I, I thought he was going to say no, but you know, by the grace of God, he said yes. And it was a really beautiful and profound season of learning and growth in my life, and uh, I will be forever indebted to that person. But it took prayer, and it took asking the person, actually taking the step to ask. And so I'd encourage you that you might need to do the same. So can we commit this week to asking that, that question? You know, who have I been asked to influence? Maybe who can influence me? Who can be a positive influence on my life? You know, if you're a high school student or a university student, you can do this. If you are a retiree or at the peak of your career, you can do this as well. If you're a new parent or a veteran parent, you can do this as well. It takes all types for us to be sharpened by one another. When we consider who we pass down a legacy of faith to, we we also have to consider those who don't yet know the Lord, our neighbors, both our literal neighbors and those around the world. And how do we do this in a way, um, in in a world that's kind of increasingly skeptical or apathetic or even hostile to organized religion? That's probably a whole sermon unto itself, and we don't have time to talk about it here, but it's something to consider and mull over lots of coffee uh, with a friend or by yourself in your prayer time. And then the last question, how do we pass it down? How do we pass down this legacy of faith? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I love this picture that's painted in what's called, um, in, in the Jewish tradition, it's called the Shema. And it describes the central charge of God to his people, as well as the nature of God, God's oneness and God's incomparable nature. But when we ask the final question of how we pass down faith, it has something very interesting to say. So I want you to catch this here. So uh, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We read that in, in Matthew as well. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That's a beautiful picture. Talk about it at home, on the road, in the evening, in the morning. Carry the story of God around with you, wherever you find yourself. Meditate it. Meditate on it. Day and night. And this is going to look like meals around the table with family and friends and neighbors. Going for walks and uh, going out for coffee or tea. We're Presbyterians, so I can say also for a drink, maybe if that's your thing. <laughs> Potentially playing a sport together. A little pitch for our Tuesday night uh, pickleball and badminton crew. Or gagaball on Monday nights with the youth. Or how about some outside-the-box thinking, like inviting others into like your just daily routine of life. Let them, let them see how you are in your personal life. There was a, there was a guy that I kind of mentored and, and worked with for Years and years, from the time that he was in junior high all the way till he got married in his early 20s. And uh, he moved to a different city, and, and so we kind of, you know, have drifted apart over the years a little bit. But sometimes he would just need to catch up and need someone to talk to, and I'd say, hey, I'm a little busy. I got you know, I have company coming over that night. I got to run some errands, but you're free to come with me. You know and so we would literally drive around to like Zair's and then to some other stores to pick up stuff and we would just chat and then eventually you know we got to the end and say okay now I've got to go see you later let's pray you know and it was really beautiful it was like I, those were some really special times that I remember and it's so simple you're literally just driving around with them running errands and you get to be a part of their life in some way Sometimes if you are claiming that busyness is an obstacle, we gotta get a little creative. We can also pass along a legacy of faith by allowing others to see our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. Get honest, get vulnerable. There is nothing more disarming and faith-forming than authenticity. We can pass along the legacy of faith also by walking alongside others in their pain and in their crisis. This is when our faith will be stretched and tested. And to walk alongside people in those crucial moments is to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. There are innumerable other ways to do this, and these are just a few ways. So this past week, I believe, Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I, leave, I believe September 7th, there was a birthday, not from anyone here, well, maybe, but Courtright's birthday. Yes? September 7th? Anyone know? Yeah. So four, four, Court, Courtright turned 43 years old this past week. Happy birthday, Courtright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are. Okay, and just as show fans, who was here at the, like, the very beginning? There's a, I think there's a few of you. That's amazing. That's so cool. I wasn't even alive. I love it. it. Um, We are so thankful for God's faithfulness over the years. And especially into this new season as we seek out a lead pastor and cultivate this new mission and vision that God has led us toward we have a wonderful, amazing opportunity to continue passing a legacy from generation to generation for decades to come. Amen? Amen. But there is an equal threat that we see in our passage today. Because we are prone to comfort, we are prone to settling into our own ways and doing things just the way they've always been done, that we neglect God's call for us to pass down our faith to the next generation in a way that is going to help them around. This is for all of us, young and old and in between, to consider. Consider this. If a new generation does not know God, it will likely not be the lack of faithful pastors and preachers that caused it but rather the lack of faithful pastors and preachers who do not equip the people to be the hands and feet of Jesus in their neighborhoods and in the nations. I can't do it all. You as an individual can't do it all, but collectively we are very powerful. Imagine with me for a moment how our families and our relationships and our church would thrive if we got this right. Think upon what we've accomplished over these past 43 years and what God can do in the generations to come, long before our tenure here, long, before our, uh, long after our lives are, are gone. We should ask the question, Lord, can you give us a holy imagination for what you are doing in our midst? So I'd like to pose as we close our time of teaching together I'd like to pose a couple questions that I'm going to put on the screen here and I want to encourage you to contemplate and meditate them on for just a minute or two and then I'll invite Deb Kutz to lead us in the prayers of the people the questions are who might God be encouraging me to reach out to and this could be a, to offer mentorship or to learn from What are some of my generation's tendencies that I need to repent of? What positive generational legacy can I have a role in leaving behind? And then finally, how can I support in a hands-on way the next generation? Just take a moment and just reflect on those questions before we continue on.